Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today we're going to be talking about a report that was recently released by Post Carbon Institute, and it was authored by earth scientist David Hughes, and it raises some critical doubts about the U.S. Energy Information Administration's projections for domestic oil and shale gas production. And uh, I'm so pleased to have the author of that report, Dave Hughes, with us today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dave. Good to have you. Oh, great. Pleased to be here, Joe. Well, before we dive into your report, I want to give our listeners some background information. You know, some of our listeners are college students who are just beginning to learn about how energy policy in the U.S. works. And so let's start us off by having you tell us about the role of the EIA, who they are, and how they shape public policy. Well, the EIA stands for the Energy Information Administration. And it's part of the U.S. Department of Energy. It's their data collection arm. And in fact, they provide a very important role in collecting energy statistics on on production, uh, reserves, storage volumes for oil and gas, and so forth. It's really uh, indispensable, and it's all made available for free on the Internet. Um, They also produce forecasts. So they do an international energy outlook uh, every year, kind of looking at the world. A short-term energy outlook, which is produced every month, looking at the next couple of years. And an annual energy outlook, which looks at U.S. production of all forms of energy uh, out to 2050. And that's what uh, my report was looking at. Mm-hmm. And every year they, they put out the report, like you mentioned, the annual energy outlook. Give us a little bit more specifics about what kind of information is included in that report and, and also how that information is utilized by both public policymakers and investors. Well, it, it looks at all forms of energy, as I mentioned. So oil, gas, coal, nuclear, uh, renewable energy. And they have several different uh, scenarios. Typically, the one that's used by most people as being the most likely is their reference case. But they also have a high resource case, a low resource case, a high oil price, and a low oil price case. But in the case of my report, I looked at the reference case, which is really the most widely used and assumed to be kind of the most likely uh, projection of what will happen. In the future, and in in particular, in my report, I looked at uh, shale oil and gas, which is really the only segment of oil and gas production that's growing mm-hmm. in North America, um, and that's really thanks to the uh, implementation of high volume hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling in combination, mm-hmm. which has really been a revolution in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Now, how do public policymakers uh, take this annual energy outlook and use it to make public policy? And, and similarly, investors, how do they take this report in and use the information to make decisions? What does that look like? 
Well, it, it basically, if, if you assume that, you know, the production of oil is going to be rising uh, with no worries for the next four decades, um, you would assume, you know, that base is covered and uh, we don't really have to worry about it. Uh, similarly, investors will look at that and say, well, you know, given the projected oil prices, which are generally below $100 out to 2035 or so, uh, no problem, you know, providing debt to uh, shale drillers to allow them to produce the gas and oil. And, and so, the, the, you know, the forecasts are very important in terms of people's long-term view. If you mm-hmm. assume that natural gas is going to be below five dollars a thousand cubic feet out to twenty forty, uh, you know that's a very cheap fuel for electricity generation. Why would you look at uh, alternatives? Right. And that, that's what I was interested in looking at: is how how reliable are those forecasts? Right. And so in advance of the EIA's 2018 annual energy outlook, Post Carbon Institute released your report and it's entitled Shale Reality Check. For our audiences to get the most out of our discussion today, there are a couple of terms that I'd like for you to explain really quickly. And the first one is tight oil play. And the second one is shale gas play, because not everybody's familiar with those phrases. Sure. Uh Tight, tight oil refers to tight rocks, which are really very low permeability rocks. They're typically the source rocks where the oil was initially uh, formed. You know, and traditionally the conventional oil has been uh, produced from migrated oil, so the oil is flowed out of the source rocks into traps, and then it's produced in much higher permeability rocks. But hydraulic fracturing has allowed us to basically go into those source rocks, uh, you know, with very high pressures, you know, fracture the rocks, pump in uh, what's called a prop into a sand to hold the fractures open and and produce the oil from the source rocks, which has really been uh, revolutionary. Shale gas, uh, shale is is similarly a very impermeable rock. it hasn't been able to be produced economically until the advent of hydraulic fracturing at at those kind of levels in order to to kind of break it up and induce fractures to increase the permeability and allow the gas to be produced. So it's really a technological revolution. You know, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, it's made it all possible. Mm -hmm. And as you assessed the EIA's projections. Did you have any issue with their short and medium-term projections for U.S. shale and oil production? Well, it depends on on the play. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the plays uh, are likely, you know, not not too unreasonable for the short and medium term. Mm -hmm. Other ones, like the back information, which is where tight oil really got started uh, back in the mid 2000s, uh, you know, there it, it it's basically its past peak. It's it's been declining. It's going up a little bit because the uh, the drilling rate has increased. But they're projecting, uh, you know, a radical ramp up to far above the peak, you know, over the medium term, which I I would say is unlikely, given the the oil prices that they're projecting. 
Mm-hmm. And your report goes into detail on several different plays uh, across the country. And I'd like to talk about some of the findings in your report and give you a chance to go into some detail. Uh, one of them is the, the Permian Basin plays, and, and those are kind of the main driver for tight oil production growth. Dave, talk to us about where in the country these plays are located, and and are they producing as projected by the EIA? Well, you know, in general, for what I what I did is I looked at all of the major shale gas and tight oil plays, and those those plays make up about eighty eight percent of of the total forecast out to twenty fifty in the EIA's outlook. Um, and then I kind of went through them one by one. Uh, you know, I used a commercial database of well production data, which is, is not available to the general public, and, uh, you know, assessed each of the the plays uh, one at a time. The Permian Basin is in northwestern Texas and uh, southeastern New Mexico, and it's actually a basin that's been producing oil for almost a century, so... Um, you know, really, they're going back in and looking at, at different parts of certain reservoirs, the, the more impermeable parts. And hydraulic fracturing has really allowed, uh, you know, a, a stellar increase in production. From a couple of those plays, uh, there's there's three main ones in the Permian, and then there's a few smaller ones. But two of those three main ones are are basically responsible for a large proportion of the increase in oil production we're seeing in the U.S. The question is, how long can those plays keep going up or, you know, even keep producing at their current levels? Right. And and what do you, what do you project in your report? Well, I, th- I you know, I think that in the, the short term, the production of the plays as they exist are, basically this, the same for the EIA as they were for my analysis because we're looking at, you know, the current state of play. But in the longer term, uh, it, it really depends on how many places you have to drill. Uh, one, one of the characteristics of shale that we didn't talk about is that although these wells can produce at fairly high volumes initially when they're first drilled, they decline very quickly. So, you know, they decline on average about 80% over the first three years of production. Uh-huh. And it's a, it's a hyperbolic decline, so the first year is the steepest, and then it gradually flattens out. But if you add up all the wells in a play, typically, you know, the overall field decline, if you didn't drill a well, is about 30% per year. So 30% of the production has to be made up by more drilling. And, you know, each of those wells costs, you know, on average about $6 million each. Uh, and you have to drill enough wells to replace 30% of production every year. So it's really a, a drilling treadmill. The, the drilling can't stop, and a lot of capital has to flow in mm-hmm. in order to pay for it. Uh, and that and capital, it, I'm assuming, is coming from... Is it coming from banks that are looking at, again, at the EIA's report? Uh, you know, where is the financing for that continuous drilling coming from? 
Uh, yes, from banks in part, from investors, from the stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, if people think that the outlook is kind of limitless, uh, they're willing to put money in because the uh, the returns are there. Bas- basically, putting your money in a bank pays you almost nothing these days. Right. Um, so the stock market is is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And so a long-term view of what production is going to be is is crucial uh, to getting people to invest and to, you know, getting the, the money to keep this drilling treadmill going. Mm-hmm. But in the, well, in the longer term, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go right ahead. No, I said in the longer term, uh, you know, there's a couple things that have been happening here. One is the technology is improving. So, you know, if you look at the back information, for example, a typical horizontal lateral is about 10,000 feet long. So that's, that's two miles of horizontal drilling through the, you know, the, the formation. Wow. Uh, now they've been pushing that up to over 15,000 feet in a couple places. They've also greatly increased the amount of water and the amount of, of propent or sand that they're putting into these wells. Just, just to give you an idea, uh, it's tripled since 2012. Wow. So we're, they're now on average putting in about 2,000 gallons of water per foot of lateral, right? Of horizontal well, and lateral. remarkably, some of these plays are in areas where there's drought. So that's... Uh, That's pretty interesting. We've got to take a real quick break. We have so much more with Dave Hughes in just a moment, folks. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about a report that was recently distributed uh, by Post Carbon Institute called Shale Reality Check. And it's in response to the Energy Information Administration, or EIA's, annual um, energy outlook. And this is a report that comes out through uh, a kind of subdivision of the U.S. Department of Energy. This report is extremely important, and it, it's used by public policymakers. It's used by investors um, because it makes projections about our various uh, energy sources and their production and the percentage of energy that they will supply for our energy consumption. And so this report that was recently put out by Post Carbon Institute questions some of the long-term production numbers that the EIA is projecting for uh, oil and gas production in the U.S. And the report's author, David Hughes, is with us to talk about that. David, your report indicates that all the other major tight oil plays that are producing they're producing at rates below peak levels. And I'd like for you to talk to us about what's happening in the Bakken, the Eagle Ford, uh, Niobrara, and Austin Chalk plays, and whether the EIA report accurately reflects the reality that your report cites. Well, we, we could start with the Bakken play in North Dakota and uh, eastern Montana. And that's where tight oil really got started. Um, first got started in, in Montana and then moved into uh, North Dakota, which is most of the production is now from North Dakota. Uh, the play peaked in 2014 uh, in December, and it peaked at about 1.2 million barrels per day. It, then it fell down to a little below a million barrels per day. Uh, a lot of that was due to the collapse in oil price, which happened in the mid mid twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. and because of that, the drilling rate went down. And as I mentioned, uh, the, you know the field decline in the back end is over thirty percent per year. So, if you don't drill, uh, the play goes down by about thirty percent in terms of production. And so, the price is up a little bit now. Uh, Operators have become smarter. As I mentioned, they've tripled the amount of, of water and propant they're putting into these wells and increased the, the horizontal length. So they're able to produce the oil cheaper than they could back in 2012. Uh, and also, there's been enough drilling now that we know where the, the so-called sweet spots are. So operators have been able to increase the profitability of these wells both by you know, improving the technology and by high grading the place, basically drilling in the highest quality parts of the place. And the same thing has happened in the Eagle Ford. Uh, it went up to as high as 1.6 million barrels per day when it peaked 
in early 2015, and, and now it's down, I think, about 25% below peak, or maybe a little more than that. Uh, it's more or less flattened out because drilling rate is, you know, basically keeping up with decline at this point in time. But the question is, you know, there's only so many places to drill in sweet spots. Mm-hmm. And those have been the focus of industry drilling so far uh, in this era of low oil prices. And eventually they're going to have to move into lower quality parts of the reservoir. Uh, the cost of the wells isn't going to go down, but the amount of oil that they get out per well will go down. And therefore the prices are going to have to go up. And you're going to have to drill more wells, ever more wells, to uh, replace production, you know, as you go into mm-hmm. lower quality parts of the reservoir. If you look at the Niobrara, which is in uh, mostly in Colorado, but also in Wyoming, uh, generally much lower productivity wells there than the, uh, the back under the Eagle Ford, but they're also cheaper to drill. Mm-hmm. And it's down about 25%. Uh, the Austin Chalk, which is in southern Texas and it, and parts of Louisiana, and it underlies the Eagle Ford in some in some places, and that's where it's really been able to produce something. But uh, it it basically peaked back in the in the 1990s, uh, more as a conventional play than a a tight oil play, and you know. The jury's out on what's going to happen there, but the EIA is projecting, you know, strong growth in production from that play out to 2050, which mm-hmm. I think is extremely optimistic, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the well fundamentals. Right. Now, your report also talks about the Appalachian plays and how they're the main drivers for shale gas production growth. What is your analysis of the EIA's projection for production in those plays? Well, there's there's basically two plays there. Uh, one of them is the Marcellus, which is mainly in Pennsylvania, but also covers uh, northern West Virginia, a little bit of uh, eastern Ohio, and it extends slightly into New York State. Although New York State is banned fracking, mm-hmm. uh, but most of the production comes from Pennsylvania, probably eighty-five to ninety percent. Uh, it, it's a huge play. You know, it covers, uh, um, you know, many counties. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it you know, it, so it accounts for probably about a third of U.S. shale gas production at this point in time. And I expect uh, the production there will go up, certainly in the, in the short term. Uh, they built additional pipelines to take the gas away. Um, so that... You know, I think that the EIA projections, which kind of projected, you know, growing slightly out to 2050, and then presumably continuing after that, are, are extremely optimistic. Would be my rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very important play for the eastern U.S. Uh, really, a game changer. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other play is the Utica, which is in Ohio. And it underlies the Marcellus in parts of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's much earlier on for the Utica, so its production is much smaller at this point than uh, than the Marcellus, but it's growing fast. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, some very high productivity wells are being drilled there. And certainly in the short and medium term, uh, the Utica, there's no question it's going to grow. Uh, but again, you know, the EIA's projection is, you know, for continued growth out to 2050, uh, you know, basically producing, I think it was about 12 times as much gas as it's produced so far. Oh, wow. Uh, out, out to 2050. So I, you know, I would rate that as extremely optimistic as well. But certainly mm-hmm. in the short and medium term, both of those plays are going to produce likely quite a bit more gas. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the production rates of some of the other major shale gas plays, uh, in particular Barnett, Haynesville, Fayetteville, and Woodford. And talk us through the EIA projections for, for those plays. Well, the, the shale gas really got started, uh, you know, back in the late 90s with the Barnett play, mm-hmm. which is in uh, east central Texas. Um, and that that play basically peaked back in 2011. It's now producing about 45% below peak, 44% below peak, I believe. And in essence, there's been 20,000 wells drilled there. Uh, some of the, uh, you know, the top sweet spot counties have been drilled at eight wells per square mile. And it's, you know, it's just about drilled off, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in terminal decline, which I think will continue. Uh, the EIA recognizes that it, it will keep declining, you know, for the short, medium term. But for some reason, they they think it's going to start ramping up again, you know, once we get into the 2030s. Not, you know, it will never exceed its previous peak, but it will uh, it will grow after the 2030s in their in their view. The Haynesville play in Louisiana and uh, East Texas was really the number one shale gas play back in in say 2011. It peaked in. In 2012, it's now down about 40% below peak as well. Uh, The EIA projects that that is going to turn around and production is going to grow to well above where it peaked back in 2012. And again, you know, I think the Haynesville will produce a lot more gas, but I don't, and it may, production may go up a little bit uh, if drilling rates increase enough. But I think, again, the, the projection there has to be rated as extremely optimistic. If you look at other plays, like the Fayetteville in Arkansas uh, is well below peak. And it, you know, it, it's, again, coming fairly close to being saturated with wells. So you know, it will continue to decline, in my view. I don't think that there's a lot of, of scope for... You know, really ramping up production. Maybe if the price of gas goes up a lot, but otherwise, I think it's in a gentle decline. Mm-hmm. The Woodford play in Oklahoma uh, again is has peaked, and you know it remains to be seen where that one goes. Uh, there's still you know quite a few places to drill there, but in in general, that would be rated as. Highly optimistic. I mean, my most conservative rating of the EIA forecast was highly optimistic. 
but most of them are extremely optimistic. Mm-hmm. And why are the EIA's projections for shale gas and tight oil so optimistic? Well, it's a question of the assumptions that go into them. Um, you know, the reason that we publish based on the, the 2017 EIA report is that they don't publish the assumptions for these reports until six months after the report is released. So the annual energy outlook 2017 was published in January last year, and the assumptions weren't published until July. So I went through all the assumptions very carefully, you know, looking at the amount of oil each well would produce, how many uh, wells can be drilled per square mile. And, you know, I scratched my head. I mean, they don't tell you. And unless you go through all the assumptions, you wouldn't come to the the conclusions that uh, I came to to because, you know, it it takes a lot of work to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, uh, you know, if you look at my report, basically the assumption is that 100% of proven reserves will be recovered before 2050. And something between 60 and 73% of unproven resources, these are basically the assumptions will be recovered. Uh, And unproven resources really haven't been shown uh, to be economically viable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a question mark of what prices those would be recoverable at or if they're recoverable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to talk about that in our next segment. We've got to take a quick break, but we have so much more to talk about with Dave Hughes. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. I just want to remind you all that Go Green Radio is just one small piece of a much bigger organization. Back in 2002, I started the Go Green Initiative, which is an environmental education program. Uh, We work with schools in all 50 states in the U.S. and in 73 countries around the world to help them do two things. First of all, conserve natural resources for future generations, and secondly, to protect children's health from environmental pollutants. So if you'd like to learn more about our organization and get involved, Get your school involved. It's free to join. Uh, you can check us out at gogreeninitiative.org. Well, our show today is talking about uh, the Energy Information Administration's projections for the long-term oil and gas production in the U.S. And we're talking with the author of a brand new report that's been released by the Post Carbon Institute called Shale Reality Check. His name is David Hughes, and he's been talking with us about uh, what he would consider some very optimistic projections on these long-term production uh, numbers for a variety of of oil and shale plays throughout the United States. David, why is there so much difference at the play level between the EIA's 2017, 2016, and 2015 annual energy outlook reports when play fundamentals have really not changed? Well, that's a very good question. And I, you know, I'd like to have the answer to that. Um, yeah, you know, it really uh, speaks to the rigor of the way those forecasts are made. Um, because you know, to to be fair, you know, the technology has changed. The technology has got better, and with more drilling, we know a little bit more about the plays, but not that much more. And, it, you know, it seems that, uh, you know, there's a lot of scatter. It looks more like a, a dartboard kind of a, an estimation process. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I think it's important to go through and, and look at the, you know, I, I went through and, and took the place apart by county and apart by by well type so I could look at, you know, how does well quality vary as you go across the play? Because it's, it's always better in a sweet spot than it is in the rest of the play. Mm-hmm. And secondly, how, how has well quality changed over time, right? Mm-hmm. As they increase the amount of water, increase the amount of propent, uh, generally well productivity goes up if geology is, is constant. Uh, up, up to a point, and you know, as I mentioned, there's only so many places to drill uh, in a sweet spot, and if you drill too closely together, uh, that that causes problems. You're really drilling more wells than you need to to extract the resource, so you know it's costing you more mm-hmm. uh, per unit of of oil or gas that you get out. 
Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about those frack hits and well interference and how that impacts drilling locations and productions, because that's a really interesting point. Right. You know, in some some places, we're already seeing that. You know, parts of the Permian, the Eagle Ford, uh, the Bakken. You know, if you look at the sweet spot counties in the Bakken, for example, uh, one of the early sweet spot counties was the the Montreal County, which is in the eastern part of the, of the play. Uh, <clears throat> however, if if you look at the more recent wells that they've drilled in Montreal County, the average well productivity is falling. You know, so that indicates that technology is has reached its limits. Uh, they're either moving out of the sweet spot area of that county into lower quality rock, or they're drilling wells too close together and you're getting uh, so-called frack hits or interference. Mm-hmm. And what? in the... Oh, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you go right ahead, Dave. No, I was going to say, in the Eagle Ford, for example, uh, Rystad did a an interesting uh, article on uh, what's happening there. But in essence, you know, they drill so-called parent wells, you know, at a fairly wide spacing. And then they drill infill child wells in between them. Mm. And if you get too close together, you really compromise the, the productivity of both the parent wells and the infill child wells. And they've demonstrated that that's, that's happening in the, the Eagle Ford. It's also happening in places in the Permian. You know, it, it's some, some of those plays are still quite a few places to drill. But in others, uh, I noticed in some counties we're we're seeing well productivity falling, and you know we're dealing with a finite resource at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and what that indicates is either people are moving out of sweet spots, and even with the best of technology, uh, you know geology always rules at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, well productivity is falling, and ultimately that's going to happen in all of these places. It's just mm-hmm. a question of time. And, and what that indicates in the long term is prices are going to have to go a lot higher and we're going to have to increase the drilling rate radically just to keep production flat or to, you know, stem the declines. Uh, not, you know, technology has its limits and it's not going to keep ramping up well productivity forever. Well, and, and that raises an interesting point. In order to meet the reference case projections for shale gas and tight oil in the EIA's 2017 report, how many additional wells would need to be drilled and at what cost? Well, I, I you know, there's, there's certain assumptions. If you go through my report, play by play, I've calculated, based on the EIA assumptions document, how many wells they are are considering in order to get that resource. And if you add all those up, it, it adds up to a little over a million wells between 2016 and, and 2050. For the, for the plays I looked at, the major plays, 88% of total production. Uh, and the cost of that is about $5.7 trillion at you know, an average of about $6 million a well. If you look at the other 12% that I didn't look at, which is in you know, lower quality reservoirs 
where each well produces a lot less. We need to add a, a lot more wells, and you know the total cost to go up to something like nine point eight trillion, and that's just for shale and tight oil. That's not for conventional gas, you know, which, which is is still going to be conventional gas produced and yeah. offshore gas and oil in the Gulf Coast or, or in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so the EIA's estimate for the whole thing, conventional plus unconventional shale gas and tight oil, is about 1.3 million wells between 2016 and 2050 at a cost of, of over $7 trillion. Um, oh you know, which is a, a lot of money. Uh, personally, I don't think all of those wells could be drilled because you'd be increasing the well density uh, to the point where you'd have, you know, basically just total overkill. You're drilling way too many wells to get the resources actually there. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be seeing a lot more frack hits and, and well interference, and it's just uh, overkill. You know? Well, but, and it uh, begs the question, and, and it's hard for me to even begin to wrap my head around this, but what are the environmental implications of drilling that many wells? Well, I mean, I'm certain you've had probably programs on that in terms of of the amount of water that's being used. Uh, well, we've had shows that where people talk about what's currently happening, but we really haven't talked about that kind of scale, <laughs> that what you're no. talking about. And that's what is kind of unfathomable. I mean, what what do we have to look forward to if we're drilling that many wells? Well, take what you've seen so far and <laughs> multiply by 10. Okay. It's, uh, you, you know, in round numbers, you could basically say there's maybe 100,000 fracked, you know, modern fracked wells mm-hmm. in the U.S. right now, maybe a little more. Uh, so we're talking about a million, right? And wow. a lot of that drilling is, is fairly concentrated. I mean, it's not everywhere because the resource is not everywhere. But, uh, you know, the kinds of things that we've seen in terms of water consumption uh, and so forth are, are just going get, to get worse. Like the average well back in 2011, 2012, when I started looking at this, in the U.S. was about 5 million U.S. gallons per well. And now it looks like the average is closer to 20 million. Oh, my stars. Uh, you know, they, they drilled a well in the Hainesville in Louisiana, and they put 50 million pounds of sand into it. Oh, and I, my. I just, I just calculated that. Well, how many railway cars of sand is that? And it turns out it's 200-car unit trains of sand for one well. Oh so, my stars! That's 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 just hard to even. That's yeah, hard that's to fathom. Kind of brute force technology that we're talking about here. Yeah, and we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we've got more, so much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. We've been talking about the Energy Information Administration, or EIA's, annual energy outlook report and how their long-term projections for U.S. oil and gas production may be a little too optimistic. And we've been talking about a report that David Hughes put together that goes through the uh, the play by play, quite literally, the oil and gas plays, uh, each one looking at information that isn't readily available to the general public uh, about the actual current production and and realistic long term production of these plays, and his estimation is that the EIA's report is is highly optimistic. Dave, help us understand the energy security implications of overestimating future oil and gas production? Well, if you, you know, right now oil and gas are probably about two-thirds of the energy that's provided in the U.S. So they're extremely important components of the U.S. economy. Energy in general is fairly highly correlated with GDP and, you know, the whole health of the uh, economy. If you've overestimated the resource and how much you're going to have to work with, say, out in the 2030 time frame, especially when we're trying to reduce carbon emissions, and you assume that you're going to have, you know, plentiful oil and gas at, at relatively low prices, you know, for the foreseeable future, um, even though that may be an extremely optimistic outlook, then you're not putting the resources that you need to into alternatives. You know, renewable energy, uh, infrastructure to 
reduce the level of consumption, which I think is extremely important. Um, so, you, you know, you're putting your eggs in the wrong basket, let's put it that way, in, in terms of meeting things like, like climate obligations and in terms of just meeting basic energy security, having, having enough. You know, we saw what happened uh, with the Arab oil embargo back in the 70s, mm-hmm. and, and that could happen again. Uh, if we, uh, you know, look at look beyond the the short term or the medium term. Well, and one of the things that has been concerning for me as I sit back as a layman and I watch things progress, you know, when fracking started and we started getting a lot of cheap domestic natural gas, um, there were a lot of utility companies and a lot of manufacturing plants that began to convert their, you know, their systems to natural gas. And that was great because it was cheap. But as we begin to produce more gas, I I keep seeing more and more of a push to export our domestic supplies to places that are used to paying much higher prices for their gas. And I'm just wondering if we allow, with all this production that's happening in the short and medium term, if we allow more export of our domestic supply, how might that impact domestic pricing for gas and oil, especially gas? Uh, It's certainly going to make them go higher. There's no question. And and some of the industrial users, like, you know, people like Dow Chemical that that use gas as a feedstock uh, for their products, uh, we're very concerned about, you know, ramping up LNG exports. And, you know, you would only do that if you thought there was absolutely no worries in, you know, increasing production as far as the eye can see, which is basically the, the EIA outlook. Mm-hmm. So I, well, you know, I think in the long term, that's a bad idea. I agree with you, Dave. And, you know, I'm I'm a mom. <laughs> and so I think about, you know, my kids and their future. And it's a little bit shocking to see uh, our country, you know, producing as fast and as quick as we can, selling it as fast and as quick as we can. Because I have to wonder what, what happens if, you know, that production falls off and we have exported all of that domestic supply or a good portion of that domestic supply leaving future generations without the benefit of those natural resources. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I've done uh, studies for Canada, and if you look at the, you know, the NEB, which is a comparative organization to the EIA in Canada, and if you look at Canada's commitments under the Paris Agreement, oil and gas production is going to be 74% of Canada's emissions by 2040. Wow. Um, so the rest of the economy is going to have to shrink its emissions by 86%. And, you know, there's a lot of emissions that are associated with producing oil and gas, particularly frac gas, which has things like methane leakage, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. So you're just exacerbating, you know, increasing the production, exporting it, uh, exacerbating the uh, greenhouse gas problem, and making long-term energy security worse. You know, that seems to me what's happening. Mm-hmm. It, it really does feel that way. And I, I you know, I, 
I hate to present problems without solutions on Go Green Radio. And so, you know, I like to leave our listeners with ideas for things that they can do, actions they can take to have some sort of impact on this. I mean, is it a matter of contacting your congressman and letting them know that, you know, we don't want to export all of these natural resources that we'd like to save some for future generations? Or, you know, what can we do? Well, uh, that's a a really good question. I think that's probably where it starts, you know, at the political level and the awareness, because I'm sure, you know, politicians more or less look at the EIA outlook. That's the official, you know, best guess. Um, So let's go with it. You know, I highly doubt that any of them would have looked at my report. And similarly with the mainstream media, uh, you know, we got some buy-in on the report, but, you know, certainly not at the New York Times or, you know, levels like that. Yeah. Which would really kind of get it out to the, the general public, which is where it has to go. You know, you know on a personal level, what you're listeners could do is, is certainly, you know, look at your own consumption of energy. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the cheapest ways um, going forward to reduce emissions and, and improve energy security is figuring out how to use an awful lot less. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, in order to reduce consumption, but I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, energy likely has to get a lot more expensive. That, that's one way to induce people to use less. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, you know, renewables. Renewables have their problems. You know, solar's intermittent, wind is intermittent. Uh, but they have to be ramped up a lot. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to get on with it and, uh, you know, realize how valuable energy is to our economy and our society. Um, and that the and, sources of some of that energy are finite. And once they're gone, well, they're gone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and, and that's one of the biggest paid. problems. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of people don't realize, guess what? The earth isn't making more oil and, and gas that will be available in anybody's lifetime. <laughs> you know, th- this is a finite resource that was created in a very specific and special moment in time. And, and you know, the benefit of all that intense and dense energy um, won't last forever. And we need to think about how our children and their children will fuel and energize their future. Dave, I cannot thank you enough for being on Go Green Radio. Thanks to you and Post Carbon Institute for this very informative and enlightening report. I hope that uh, more and more of our listeners will get a hold of Shale Reality Check and share it with their friends and neighbors. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.